Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is um, Danny, and, and my task today is to uh, bring this series uh, that we've been spending maybe five weeks, I think, today's week six, uh, on this topic of desire. By the way, questions, asking questions is not a bad thing. Coming back to that previous slide, I think questions, if anything, reveals our humanity. It's not, it's not revealing doubt. It's simply saying, who are we? And how do we go about living with each other and living with God? So I'm looking forward to answering the easier questions uh, in two weeks' time. And the other wonderful people on the panel will tackle some of the hard ones. We'll see how we go. Um, You know, we've been talking about desire. And um, over the last five weeks, we've mentioned the fact that desire is a good thing. Um, However, when... It's disastrous, desire is disastrous when our selfishness kicks in and our desire is manipulated and distorted once we start stepping away from the way that God intended it to be. So I'm going to jump right in. Uh, We've got some heavy things to talk about this morning. Not heavy in a a bad way, just they're solid. You know, there's, there's some theology here I think that needs grappling with, especially as I want to talk about what's God's desire. So we've been talking mostly about our desire and how that doesn't quite go well some days and sometimes it does go well. But what about God? And so for us, the Bible is crucial to our understanding of desire because it tells an eternal story of what what God desires. I once heard someone say that if it wasn't for our recklessness or our disobedience, God's story would be like a double-sided travel brochure. You've got creation at the beginning, and then you finish with a, with a banquet at the end. And yet, what we have is a story after story of creation at the beginning and a story that will finish at the end, and all the in-between bits are the bits that we're all caught up in and the messiness of life. So what we have here recorded in the Bible is the ugliness, it's the chaos, it's the pain leading to ultimate redemption of all things. And the story of creation was an expression of God's desire to share the wonder and the beauty of a loving relationship between man, woman, and their creator. Actually, heaven and earth were not that far away from each other because God's presence was intertwined in both. The moment sin, though, became part of our story, heaven became distant. And we've been wondering what it feels like and what it looks like ever since. So let me ask you a question. How would you describe heaven? If someone asked you, tell me about heaven, how, what would you say? How would you describe it? I went to, a super, I went to the supermarket uh, last week and... Um, you know the days where your trolley is maybe a little bit too full to go through the self-checkout? I normally prefer the self-checkout. It means I don't have to talk to anyone, right? Um, but this, this day, I was, I was pretty tired, and I thought, I'm going to go through a... Through a I'm going to get some help and uh, get a, a checkout person to help me out. I looked down at this person's name, and her name was Cielo, or some people say Cielo. And that is the Spanish word for heaven. And... Um, of course, I, th- I knew she was 
uh, South American. She looked South American, so I changed to Spanish. And I said, hey, your name means heaven in Spanish. Tell me where you're from. And we had this lovely conversation. I walked away. She was from Colombia, and she married a man from Peru. They're in Launceston, and uh, they're looking for visa options to stay in Australia uh, as permanent residents. And I said, oh, so what do you think about Launceston? And she said, oh, it's really boring. (laughs) It's really boring. And I said, what do you mean? And my Spanish is not as good as it once was, but what she was telling me was, I think she was missing all the, all the uh, hustle and bustle of like, big city life, right? And I remember that took me back to the time when we came from Spain as a family and driving around Launceston at night, we were wondering where all the people had gone. <laughs> and so I walked away from there and I was thinking, isn't that funny how in Spanish we, we actually call our children heaven? And actually, it's a form of endearment as well. So you might walk around the streets in Spain or in South America and you say, hey, hey, my heaven, how are you going? When you're sort of with your partner. And if you think that sounds strange, if I translate into Spanish the fact that we call each other honey, it sounds funny to them. So it goes both ways. But heaven, at the very least, heaven is a person's name. Could we describe heaven through our senses, maybe? five senses, maybe heaven is like the physical embrace of another human being, that, that sense of touch, or it might be a child coming to you and embracing you. Maybe it's the brilliance of a sunset, this idea of our eyes, our, our sight, telling us something that is wonderful. What about a lightning show in, in a storm? What about the shivers you get when hearing a music piece using our ears? Does anyone recognize this music piece? Sleeping Beauty. It's close. It's from the Nutcracker. And actually, the piece is called The Peace of God. And actually, some people get really emotional, right? And teary. Maybe it's an opera or a ballet. Or maybe um, heaven is like the smell of a flower, fragrance using our sense of smell or the smell of an ocean. Or what about the smell of freshly cut grass when you've mowed the lawn? Or maybe heaven is what you taste. What about a snow egg? And this is Peter Gilmore's uh, restaurant in Sydney called Key. Does anyone remember the snow egg from Master Chef? I think it was. Yeah. I had the chance to try one once. That was pretty amazing. What if heaven, though, was a little bit deeper than these things, deeper than these experiences? We could talk about near-death experiences. Have you had a near-death experience? And uh, from what I'm told, there there are certain memories and images that stay with you in your mind and in your heart after you've gone through something like this. Or maybe they're miracles of where the impossible takes place. Have you experience a kind of a mental, I don't know how to describe it, a mental overload when you're trying to think in your mind about time that doesn't end, when you're thinking about eternity. Have you, come across, have you felt that before? Maybe I was lying in bed when I was a kid and I was trying to think, what is eternity? What does that mean? And the brain was starting to, to try and think through this and it would short out. It's like I can't process, I don't have the processing power to wrestle with what eternity could look like. Have you experienced that? 
What about the story of some of the children in the earthquakes uh, in, was it Turkey and Syria? And um, we have some friends that work there, they live and work there, um, helping where they can long term. And they recently wrote and told us some of the stories that were emerging from these, this disaster, essentially buildings collapsing all around, rubble everywhere. And she wrote this, there are also miraculous stories coming from under the rubble. One common one is of a girl who was pulled out from the rubble five days after her house collapsed. The rescue worker with her was distraught because he only had a small amount of water and a little chocolate to offer her. He asked her which one she would like first, and the girl replied, oh, I'm I'm not hungry or thirsty. When I was under the rubble, an abla, which is a big sister, was with me. When I was hungry, she gave me food, and when I was thirsty, she gave me water. She played with me when I was bored and made sure I wasn't scared. When the rescuers came, she went away. These stories, these are the stories from at least, there are other stories from at least four other children who spoke of a man in white who was also with them under the rubble, feeding them and caring for them. Emmanuel, God with us. Now we're getting a little bit closer to perhaps what we might describe heaven to be like. We have these glimpses that point towards something that can't be explained, something bigger than ourselves, a heavenly activity that interrupts our day-to-day world. And I would want to suggest this morning that God wants to get our attention. He's been getting our attention since creation. And so I want to describe the fact that heaven is the revelation of God's desire for his creation expressed fully in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I want to say that again. Heaven is the revelation of God's desire for his creation expressed fully in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. We may not have a very full picture of what heaven looks like, but we sure do have a full picture of what God's love looks like through his son. And it's because of Jesus that heaven and earth's, here's a new word, intertwinedness, was brought closer again. Jesus made a way possible to tell us that heaven is where God is. In the Gospel of Mark, from the very beginning, Jesus tells, sets the tone of God's desire, and he uses a very simple phrase. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says, The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The word here for time is, is not so much the, this concept of chronology, like chronos, what we think of time with a watch, or the time of the month, or the time of the day. Actually, the, the word in, in, in the original language is more closely aligned with this idea of kairos, or this, this sense of time that is, has a sense of anticipation. There's something important taking place here. And so there's a, 
there's a moment that interrupts our day. This is what that word means. The time has come. A ha-ha moment. The kingdom of God is another way of thinking about heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is interchangeably used throughout the Gospels. And so these words that Jesus is, uh, is using are deeply profound. The time has come. The kairos has come. Repent and believe because the kingdom of God has come near. What does that mean, come near? Are we talking about proximity? Are we talking about maybe a, a way of living that might feel and look different? These words are so profound that I want to just tap into two elements, I think, that tell us something about God's desire. The first one is that God desires to make things right. And the second one is that God desires to be known. And these are linked with the idea of repentance and believing. So what does this look like? Well, uh, centuries earlier, the prophet Isaiah was, was speaking about a future. And this is what we, we, we describe as, in, in the Israel story, they had a sense of a consciousness, a eschatological consciousness. They were aware that their story was not locked into a time and place, just bound by those things. They were aware that they were part of a bigger story that involved a living God um, being involved with them in the day-to-day. They were aware that there was something that was going to come that was going to make things right. And so the prophet Isaiah comes along and he says in chapter 25, he, so speaking of God, will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This is the same picture when we read the back of the brochure. If we jump forward to Revelation, we read in chapter 21, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, this is John um, who wrote this, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Notice how heaven is described not so much as a place, but the outworking of a promise. It's not a location, it seems to be here, but rather a status of our hearts a new condition based on the way that God is fulfilling his promises. God is going to make things right. He is making things right now. Are you tired, sad, or anxious? He will take this away one day. Do you have a heavy heart or are you in pain? He will take this away. He promises not to restore. We're not like some piece of furniture that he just brings to life again after being well used, he actually promises to make 
everything new. And so we continue in Revelation where it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And this is a reference to Isaiah 65. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. There's another reference to Isaiah chapter 25. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old, old order of things has passed away. God desires to make things right by establishing his presence in full among his people. And this is where I think we need some good old-fashioned uh, Old Testament theology. And this is really relating to how God chose to be with his people from the time of creation. So God established a promise with Abraham. And he said, Abraham, from you I'm going to make a whole nation of nations. Uh, people are going to see you. And now I want to use your nation as a way to describe to all the other nations how to interact with the living God. Well, eventually that deteriorated to the point where uh, Moses now comes part of the story. And Moses is, is trying to uh, reignite this, this covenant promise uh, by establishing a, a new way of living after the Israelites had been in Egypt as slaves. And they're now in the desert for a significant amount of time. And God still seeks to be with his people. And what he asks them to do is to develop a, a kind of like a portable temple, like a, like a tent structure where God's presence could come and be with his people. And that eventually transitioned into this concept of a, not so much of a tent, but King David's desire was for God's presence to be in the, in, in, in the city with them. And so he had this um, dream to have a temple where God's presence would be permanent with them in the city. David didn't necessarily see that to fruition, but it was Solomon who saw that to the end. And time and time again, God's people, though, desired to do wrong. And this is where the story of the, the prophets, the, the sort of important activity of the prophets, while they still had a, a, a prominent city, they had a, a solid nation, they were really ignoring justice. They were ignoring, looking out for each other, caring for the poor and the oppressed. It was a concept where the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. And, Jesus, and God was not happy with this. And his presence was with them to the point where he, had, he couldn't be with them anymore. Their disobedience was so strong. And this is where we get the picture of Ezekiel, where God's presence leaves the temple. But it's the story of hope, because Ezekiel was pointing towards something and someone that would come in the same way that Isaiah was, in the same way that Jeremiah was pointing towards, in the same way that Daniel was pointing towards. And eventually there's this 
story and this sense of anticipation of a new king that would finally come and do the right thing by all people. And they were expecting a warrior, a messiah that would come and destroy the the Roman Empire once and for all. And how did Jesus come? As a baby. Totally humble, a servant that actually wouldn't pick up a sword and fight, but he would fight a different battle, a spiritual battle, a battle that involved sin, a battle that can't be seen. And so Jesus actually establishes a new way of thinking about God's presence here on earth, and he becomes the the temple, if you like, that is destroyed. And that's what we celebrated a couple of weeks ago, this story of Jesus dying on the cross and then returning back to life, having dealt with and conquered over sin and death. But the story doesn't finish there, because then Jesus says, I have to go now. And by the way, we're still in this season of of post-Easter, and The idea of Pentecost is coming. This is 50 days once the resurrection is celebrated. And this is where Jesus said, when I go, I'm going to give you somebody else, a helper. And this helper, he's going to be my spirit, and he's going to be with you. And he basically activated uh, many temples. (laughs) You and me, people that had God's presence in our lives to be able to tell others about the wonderful things that Jesus has done. That being the good news. And that's something that continues today. And so we come back to this verse that Jesus said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. God has made things right because Jesus took upon himself the burden of sin that no one else could bear. He made a way for you to deal with sin And that is the activity of repentance. There is something that you can do about the sin that's in your life. And I think repenting is actually an active participation in living out the right relationship with God. Now, I'm not talking about what we we describe as works righteousness, this, this concept, you know, 500 years ago where people were earning their salvation by trying to do the right thing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a relationship with Jesus where you realize that the things in your life are not right and you want to do something about that. And Jesus has dealt with the sin and he wants to um, journey with you through this. That's what I mean by repenting. It's not just about feeling sorry or saying sorry. It's about changing the way that you think, about turning your back on the thing that is taking you away from God. That's repentance. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. And what does he say? Repent. That's where the kingdom is. So the kingdom is made up of people that are turning their back on sin and actually trying to live out a life that points towards Jesus. So I want to slow down here and ask you a question Is there an area in your life right now that you need to repent from? What do you need to ask forgiveness for? What do you need to turn your back on? God desires to make things right. God desires to be known. Jesus invites us to think about heaven not as a destination, 
but as a posture where we learn more about who God is, increasingly becoming more aware of his heart, knowing him intimately. And so in John 17, um, Jesus is spending some time in prayer just before the crucifixion, and there's a large section here of Jesus just speaking out to his disciples and teaching them, and he then he prays. And there's this little, little verse that I want to pick out from this prayer because it says something about heaven. He doesn't use this word. He says, now this is eternal life. There's another description for heaven. What is it? Is it a place? No. It is that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We're dealing with repenting. Now we're tackling the believing. What does it mean to have eternal life? It means to know God. Note that this is another description of heaven. So these terms are used interchangeably here in the Gospels. And so at one point, Paul, who follows after Jesus and he's trying to encourage the church in lots of different places, he's writing to the Ephesians. And at one point he says this, I keep asking that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. What for? So that you may know him better. This is the work of the Spirit. This is the, the helper that Jesus was talking about to his disciples after his resurrection. He said, I'm going to send someone to you. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit gives us revelation about who God is. He makes a way possible for you and I to know God deeply, to know him better. He continues on by saying, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. I think in our day and age, this feels really, it feels more challenging now than probably ever before, maybe. Since the Enlightenment, mystery and wonder have given way to reason. Science has become the new God, and if you can't prove or if you can't argue about something, then it's not worth talking about. It's not worth thinking about. An author by the name of James K.A. Smith tells the story of a painting by El Greco. El Greco is, um, he literally means the Greek. He lived in a town in, in Toledo in Spain, near where I grew up. And if you go to Toledo, there's amazing paintings of this um, Greek, the Greek artist. Uh, in the 1600s, he didn't paint small paintings. They were, they were life-size. They were huge. They took over walls of churches. And James K.A. Smith tells the story of this one particular painting of El Greco. And it's the painting which was called The Vision of St. John. It's a nod to uh, the portion of Revelation where the, 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 the writer John is looking to the heavens and there are witnesses uh, anticipating God in the end of times. And this painting 
was well kept for 200 years until a curator came along and he thought, I can modify this. And he chopped 175 centimeters off the top of the painting. And here is the painting here. That ought to be a, a taller painting, except this curator in the 1800s thought better and chopped it off and threw it in the bin, tried to modify it. And I think this is a really interesting kind of image of what's happening in our world today. We have essentially chopped the, um, the wonder, the mystery, the, um, if you like, the things that are unseen from our lives. And this is the work of um, uh, secularism and skepticism. Transcendence and the miraculous have now been put aside for a, a new way of seeing life, which actually tells us that the person is now responsible for all knowledge and for all belief and for all wonder. And so, a long time ago, human beings were quite comfortable dealing in two realms, in the physical realm and the spiritual realm. And they were constantly looking upward and outward because they knew that they were part of a, part of a, a spiritual world as well as a physical world. And for those that came to know God, they knew that that world actually was the kingdom of God. Think of the big cathedrals. If you've been to Europe, for example, we don't have big cathedrals in Australia, let's be honest. Uh, we have massive cathedrals that are a thousand years old. And you walk into these big cathedrals, and the first thing that you do is look up. Because it's enormous. In other words, architecture back then was also about pointing people upwards and outwards. It, architecture was used to make you feel small, <laughs> to make you feel insignificant, to actually point towards the fact that God was bigger. And so our age is one where the eyes are no longer upward and outward. The eyes are now fixed. Where are they? Inward. I become the center where I determine my fate and where I, what I, I choose what I believe. But God desires to be known and desires that everyone know him. In John chapter 14, we read, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, Jesus says. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And this is our friend Thomas. We, we often describe him as doubting Thomas, right? Talking about the questions in two weeks' time, maybe we should all be called Thomas that day. Where are our questions? And Thomas has a question. He's thinking about what he's just heard, and he says very pragmatically, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Maybe he's thinking of physical space, right? I'm going to this place where there are many rooms. Well, tell me where, I, where we should go. And Jesus flips this. And he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. God is so, was so committed to reveal himself to us that he sent 
His Son, one and only Son. God put flesh on. Do you remember Christy wearing the different coats? God put flesh on and He revealed Himself to the world and He brought heaven to earth to the point to point people to a different way of living, a kingdom perspective, a heaven where heaven and earth intertwine once again. So if you're a follower of Jesus, my invitation is this, will you believe in him? If you're not a follower of Jesus, sorry. If you've never thought about the possibility of following someone who you can't see, but maybe your heart is racing and maybe there's a sense that God is drawing you closer. He wants you to know him. Will you believe? That's my plea. That's my question for you this morning if you don't know him. Will you believe? Will you put your trust in Jesus? Will you let him change your life little bit by little bit? What about for those that know Jesus already? How well do you know him? How's that going for you? How is this interplay of heaven and earth played out in your life? Is there evidence? Do you have fruit that reveals to others the fact that your life is somehow different? Does your life imitate the life of Jesus? How are you living out God's desire to be known? God desires to make things right and he desires to be known. How about we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for the chance to slow down and just to think through the implications of what it means to follow you. To think about this concept of a God who desires to make things right. Lord, I want to stand here on behalf of us all and just say thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Thanks for revealing yourself to us to the point where you're also uh, initiated um, a, a process where you never really leave us thanks to your spirit. And so, Lord, I want to thank you for the work of the spirit also, part of that story enabling us to be able to be aware that our story is a story that involves heaven and earth in an exchange. And so, Lord, I want to thank you that you also desire to be known. Thanks, too, once again, for the fact that Jesus revealed what knowing you looks like. And so, Lord, for my friends here today, Watching online, I ask that if someone's just asking to know who you are, that you would reveal yourself to them right now. May you, that person that's just thinking through that invitation, open your heart and let him take part of your life. Let him be king in your life. And may you experience heaven on earth. And for, for us, Lord, as we... Um, know you and have known you for, for a long time. May you keep stirring that pot, Lord, I pray. May you keep stirring up the, the things that are still not pleasant for you. May we turn our back on you. May we be able to repent and believe that you are the one true living God. And we commit ourselves to you. Thank you for desire. Thank you for revealing your desire. And thanks for giving us desire as well. Help us to keep that in check. 
May our lives be a reflection of um, the one true God. Use me, use, or, use us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand with us? We're going to keep singing. And perhaps the old hymn of de- declaration of explaining how great our God is, is a great way to finish this service.